Hello, good evening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Wednesday evening meditation question and answer session. Take this as an opportunity to practice together and to learn to think about the Dhamma. Not just to think, of course, but to, to think and to give rise to thoughts that are conducive to the cultivation of clarity of mind and thereby peace of mind. So we're not just not just here for the thinking, but there will be thoughts. When you ask questions, you have to think. When you listen to answers, you also have to think. But we use those thoughts to redirect our mind, to straighten our mind, to guide our mind back to the present moment. present moment has a special place in the Buddhist teaching. It's where we want to be always. How do you know when you're in the present moment? Well, you, you can know when you're not in the present moment. If you're in the past, of course, or if you're in the future. The thing is, we're always we're always in the present moment, in in some sense, meaning all of our experiences are, are always in the present moment, even when you're thinking about the past or the future. You're not actually in the past or in the future. But we say that you're in the past because your perception of the present moment is skewed. Your perception when when you're in the past is a perception that has been ex uh, abstracted abstracted from the present moment so the real problem isn't that we're in the past or the future it's that we are in the world of conception the past is a concept the future is a concept it's not a question of whether the past or future exist it's a question of how you experience how you experience them, the state of your consciousness, the quality of consciousness, the state of the mind when you're in the past or in the future. And so being in the present moment isn't just about not being in the past or in the future, it's about not having any abstraction of thought. So even when you're in the present, you can still very much not be in what we sort of colloquially term the present moment. It's not it's not really accurate. We're always in the present moment, but we're not in a frame of mind that sees things clearly as they are. So the Buddha talked about the present moment and pointed out how important it is to be in the present. But ultimately, he, he, he meant seeing clearly the present moment, having a frame of mind that sees the present moment as, as the present moment, rather than seeing whatever you're experiencing as, oh, this, this is something that happened to me in the past, or this is something I've got to do in the future, or this is some abstract concept. What does it mean to abstract? It means to create a concept out of it to make more out of the experience than it is or just or different from what it is because often it's not more necessarily it's just different you don't see it as it is you don't see seeing as seeing seeing becomes a cat or a dog or a person it becomes good it becomes bad nor it becomes past or future 
becomes all these things that aren't real, they aren't a part of the experience. Experience is very simple, which is why you often read the Buddha's teaching and, and it, it often seems quite simplistic. And we often search beyond that. We often, well, some, some people, I think, and, and it, it, there's often a mistake made. In we, we make the mistake of of uh, underestimating the Buddha's teachings on seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, etc. The second and third discourses of the Buddha were about the five aggregates and the six senses. The Anattalakana Sutta, the Buddha, based it all around the five aggregates. Third sutta, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, he based around the six senses. These are two of the most important suttas there are, and they're based on very simple things. Things that actually exist, things that do describe quite accurately the present experience. And so th these are things that when we think about them, the teachings that when we think about them, they encourage the mind, they guide the mind back to the present moment. Having these frameworks changes our perspective. Learning that the, fr the basic framework of reality is the five aggregates or the six senses encourages the mind to see things that way. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. Moreover, our practice, and so learning about the practice, encourages and encourages the mind, guides the mind back to the present moment. Even when you say to yourself, thinking or seeing or pain, that's a thought in itself, right? The thinking is not wrong. In fact, any mantra meditation is, is technically a thought. If you look at fire and say to yourself, fire, fire, that's a thought. So it's not really about not thinking. Meditation is about creating thoughts that are productive and supportive and helpful in focusing the mind on on the object. With mindfulness meditation, the object is the present moment, is the experience in the present moment. So anything that helps that focus our helps encourage the mind to focus on those moments. Right? When you when you say to yourself, pain or thinking or seeing, you're actually doing it right after you've experienced. So it's not actually in that moment. You can't be because when you're seeing, you're too busy seeing, and you're too busy seeing to to actually note it. Any meditation you do has to come right after. That's the nature of it. It's just a means, the thought, the clear thought, as opposed to an abstracted thought that this is a cat or a dog, or this is a problem, or this is a good thing, and so on. The clear thought that this is this, it, it evokes mindfulness, it encourages mindfulness so that the future, the next, the preceding states, subsequent states, are more pure, more clear, more simple. So, we will have thoughts, and we don't have to, we should not try to prevent ourselves from any thought at all, but we should try to cultivate clear thoughts and work on cultivating thoughts that encourage clarity. So having Facebook open is not going to do that. Listening to music is not going to do that. Everything We should put aside everything during this session. You should close your eyes. Try to bring the mind back to the experiences and see the experiences just as they are. When you have questions, go ahead and post them. If you don't have questions, just keep your eyes closed. Please, no chatting in the chat room. 
in the chat box. It's just for asking questions or saying hello. That's, that's fine as well. Greetings are fine. Go ahead. No chatting now. If we have questions, I'm happy to answer. Shraddha is here with me, as usual, to ask the questions. If there are no questions, we'll just sit quietly. But I'm ready, Shraddha, if you have. I see there are a couple. Greater detachment when noticing thoughts, deep thoughts, instead of thinking, as you and the booklet teach. What is your opinion? Those sorts of things are details that aren't going to work in the long run. Uh, often using a novel or odd choice of word seems to be better. But the words are not the most important thing. Both thought, thoughts and thinking are words that describe what's going on. It's something to consider that thoughts implies multiple thoughts, uh, which is why we often say distracted if there are multiple thoughts, and it's a hindrance. But there shouldn't be any difference between, let's say, thought, singular, and thinking, or that sort of thing. So it's not wrong. I would say use whatever one is more comfortable, but don't go trying to tweak all the time the words that you use. They aren't the most important thing, and if you're using them to better your practice, it's just going to become a, a, a habit of trying to improve your practice. There's no reason why thinking should not create clarity of mind. Until most of the questions are not exactly meditation related. If I have nerve pain and I can get rid of the pain with my mind, can I heal the nerves with my mind by meditation or mindfulness? Will the nerves still be damaged or will they eventually heal? I don't know. I doubt it's, it's not likely. But I think there are cases where certain bodily conditions can be healed through meditation. The way it works, I would think, most commonly, is that there is some mental quality that is disturbing the body, often tension, stress. And when you meditate, a lot of bodily functioning is able to work better and the healing process probably works better but nerve damage i don't i don't know i don't think so i think also another thing and this is something perhaps a little less palatable is the idea that karma can sometimes be affected by meditation that sometimes a sickness is caused by karma and as a result of performing meditation, it may be that that karma is nullified and therefore strange conditions where you thought they were incurable can suddenly be cured or gradually be cured through meditation. I think there might be some case for that, some, some truth to that. A problem would be, I think, in that wanting, where where you want for it to do that. There's an attachment to the sickness, and those attachments are much more problematic than 
the condition itself. So it should not be the goal. If it is your goal, you're going to be sidetracked and it's something you should learn to let go of. You should learn to let go of the aversion to the condition, which is very difficult in many cases, of course, but it's an important goal. I've been meditating for hours and days and can't see that much of progress. What am I doing wrong? I just let everything be and be aware, but I don't know why it's not working. Well, have you read the booklet that we have on how to meditate? Are you practicing according to that booklet? If you are, then if you aren't, then well, that's where you'd have to start before I can really advise you. And if you are, then you have to understand the booklet is not the the whole process of our meditation tradition. It's the beginning, and if you want to go through it, we have to do an, a course where I you know, give you new exercises every week. So you could do our at-home meditation course by going to our website and signing up. We also have intensive courses if you want to come here. Right now you have to be in Canada, I think, but... We're slowly opening, gradually, partially. Another thing I guess I can say is, as, as usual, the idea of progress can be dangerous because it prevents you from actually meditating. The, the, the doubt and the worry and the greed even for progress can be a hindrance to your practice and actually prevent you from progressing. So focusing on progress is not a great idea. You should focus much more on quality. Right? What does progress come from? It comes from quality of practice, of course. So focus on the quality of the practice and let the results come. Because if your practice has a quality to it, what do you think is going to happen? It's not possible that there couldn't be results to something that has quality. What does it mean to have quality? Well, the things I was saying earlier about clarity of mind, simplicity of mind, where you just see things as they are without judgment or extrapolation. my attention is either restless or dull. Can't find much stability on the breath. Therefore, I put attention to the whole body to avoid aversion to practice. Good idea or do I stay on breath? I'm not sure again if you're using our booklet on how to practice. If you're not, that's what I'd recommend. I mean, of course, if you have your own practice, I'm not trying to convert people. It's just that if you come to me, I'm I'm in a bind because I can't talk about, I can't um, advise you on a different practice, especially when I'm not quite sure what you're doing. But if by breath you mean watching the stomach, then then this, then this is an interesting question. Okay, let me answer in general, because regardless of your your tradition, whether you're doing the way we practice or not. There's some interesting ideas here. Can't find much stability in the breath. Do you know what that means? That means impermanence. You're seeing impermanence. And that's exactly what you would expect to experience with watching the stomach rise and fall. It will be un un unstable, unpredictable, unpleasant even. And trying to avoid aversion is the other interesting part here because try to understand what you're saying avoid aversion is aversive trying to avoid aversion is an aversion to aversion maybe not it's a bit of a it's a bit of a word thing but let's be clear to be clear the the important thing about any experience including aversion is to face it Visaya bimukha bhava is the nature of mindfulness is to confront the states, confront experience, not 
not to fight it, but not to run away from it. And the Buddha said, when your mind, you have a mind of aversion, you know that it's a mind of aversion. So saying to yourself, disliking, disliking. But again, I'm not sure that you're reading. You've, you're practicing according to our tradition, so that's what I'd recommend as a start. After 40 minutes, after 40 minutes, I need no more physical effort to maintain the upright position. Relaxing mentally, I felt collapsing like a stringless puppet, even if my physical body was immovable. What is this? There's a feeling of collapsing like a stringless puppet. It's hard to envision what that is. It's a feeling of relief. Probably it's piti, what we call piti, which is a rapturous feeling of energy. Or there's many different types of feelings or experiences. Either way, it's not a big deal. You just say feeling, feeling. doesn't matter so much what things are. Because again, anything that I might say it is, is just an extrapolation, an abstraction, besides saying that it's a feeling. If it's a pleasant feeling, you might say pleasant, or if it's an unpleasant feeling, you might say unpleasant, but if you dislike it or like it, you would say liking, liking, or disliking, disliking. Otherwise, it's just a feeling, and you would just say feeling, feeling. that in my daily life I struggle to stay mindful while people speak to me because I lose what they're saying to me. Will I eventually be able to focus on both given practice? Yes. I mean, it's not easy. It's the kind of thing that you, you're better off to do one or the other because otherwise it's very difficult to to maintain the conversation, right? But try it. It's great that you're trying. You know, be mindful of uh, the, the body postures and your emotions. Struggle is good. Struggle is a sign of growth. It's much more like when you're doing a meditation course. You'll be much better able to do what you're trying. When you're not doing a meditation course, when you have to interact with people, or when your meditate and when your meditation practice is limited, it's much much more challenging, and you don't have to put so much pressure on yourself to do it. Try when you can. Doing sitting meditation, watching the breath, and then the thoughts come, and I say thinking, thinking. How do you know for how long you say thinking before you go back to watching the breath? Until the thoughts go away. Once there are no, I mean, often it's already gone by the time you. Usually, often it's gone by the time you say thinking. So you can even just say it once and then go back. If it's a persistent thought, you might note it a few times. You're just trying to remind yourself that's just thinking. Okay, we have uh, going back to some non-meditation questions sure 
you could decide. Um, doesn't happiness depend on conditions and therefore unstable? Therefore not under my own power? So it really depends what you mean by happiness. Not all types of happiness depend on conditions. How do we deal with parents that do not accept your desire to become a monk? My mom wants me to finish college before I ordain, but I want to drop out and ordain. Well, the problem with dropping out is you're not sure you're going to cut it as a monk. You're not sure you're going to find... I don't want to discourage you. I dropped out. I dropped out of college. Uh, I went not to ordain, I guess, or maybe, but this was before I even knew about Buddhism. I dropped out to find wisdom, to find something. I just couldn't take it anymore and uh, ended up becoming a monk as a result and then ended up going back and finishing college but that was a that was a different issue there was no reason for me to go back and it may have you know, whatever i did it i don't i wouldn't recommend people monks go to college or anything like that but it really it's a hard question to answer for me i think that's a pretty good compromise if your mom is willing to let you become a monk and, and all it's going to take is I guess a few more years the real question I think the most important question to get out of the way is whether you'd end up in debt because if it would put you in debt that's a whole other issue so spending a few years finishing college is one thing uh, spending a few years and then ending up in debt which prevents you from becoming a monk well that's a whole other thing but if there's no question or concern of debt then it's really up to you you know you, you don't have her permission so you really can't ordain and if getting her permission is just going to require going to college for a few years then maybe that's a good thing a good compromise it's not like you can't practice or be uh, progress in, in the path before you ordain and then her point most likely is that if you do disrobe or decide you don't want to become a monk then you've got something to fall back on something more to fall back on which is reasonable that was a big reason why my father wanted me to get a degree and it's understandable not just that they don't understand but that it's true you might decide this robe might is probably to put it mildly most westerners i think who decide to ordain end up disrobing so and you know most of those are only in a few years they make only make it a year or a few years or something but there are even cases of monks who disrobe after many years not just westerners after 20, 30, 40 years as a monk, well, 40 might be pushing it, but you hear, you hear about monks. Oh, some of the monks I grew up with, even Thai monks, not many, most are still monks, but some. One of my Pali teachers disrobed. It's rare once you get that, I get. 10 years, 20 years a monk, it's more rare, of course. But there is a point there. And having something... The other thing, of course, is college does give you knowledge, gives you mental capacity. There are good things about being able to speak, being able to write. So getting a, a basic, a bachelor's degree or something can be quite useful in modern times as a monk. It's not all bad. I'm not I wouldn't recommend it. I don't recommend monks or people on the path to worry about college. But that doesn't mean I think it's a bad thing. It's just a bit misguided if everyone tries to go that route. But in your case it seems reasonable. I'm not telling you to do it. 
just think maybe it's not as bad an idea as it seems and maybe it's maybe it's not just about dealing with parents who do not accept your desire to become a monk maybe it's I don't know your situation but it may be about compromising and about appreciating her concern On the other hand, the Buddha said we should work like our hair, like our turban is on fire, right? Meaning you should really just drop everything and do it. So if that's how you feel, I'm not going to stand in your way. Don't let my words stand in your way. You just drop down on the floor and lie there until your parents give you permission. Or you die, one or the other. And I guess the qualifier to that is becoming a monk is not the most important thing. If you're if you're if you're gonna die on that hill, as they say, that's gonna be your hill to die on. It might be you've chosen the wrong hill to die on. Meaning you 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 put your foot down, draw the line in the sand there, it's maybe a misguided. I'm going to call it just a whole other thing. It does, it does get in the way of your practice, no question. So it's at least a few years where you're going to be limited in your ability to practice. Just things to think about. It shows how hard it is to answer these questions. This isn't really a meditation question, and so it's kind of one that doesn't have an answer. Something that you have to be mindful of and just watch what happens. See where your mind goes, see where their mind goes. Be patient with the outcomes. Try and stay in the present moment. Stay mindful as best you can and go with whatever answer comes. When doing walking meditation, should we see the step as more movements like stepping forward and then placing the feet down, or is it okay to see the step as one movement? So to start, we have meditated, we teach meditators to see it as one movement. There's three parts in a sense, but it's one smooth movement. What are the three parts? The beginning, the middle, and the end. But it should be one smooth movement in the beginning. As meditators progress, we give them further steps, the second step, third step, fourth step, fifth step, sixth step, and then there are multiple parts to it. If you're thinking about doing a course with us, don't do that because it's jumping ahead. Stick with the first step, stepping right as one foot movement, one movement, uh, stepping right, stepping left, and then slowly we'll give you the higher steps, which are just a means of challenging you and sharpening your faculties further. There's nothing magical about them. They just put the link for the course here, and then it's also in the description. Yeah, Meditation.sirimangalo.org is a great platform. I can say great because I didn't make it, so it's not boasting. Some of the people who made it did exceptional work in creating this nice app for us to use to meditate as a community, which you don't have to do, but some people appreciate that and to sign up for an at-home course. Um, so there's a there's a link in that site. There's one of the buttons or in the menu or something where you can sign. You have to sign in, sign up for an account. And once you've signed up, you can go to the schedule and pick a slot and we meet once a week. There's information there. start meditating I have a tendency to take deeper breaths when watching my stomach but then it settles down 
see a lot of people experience this. I don't know whether a lot of people experience that, honestly. I, I suppose I could think about it. It's not really that important whether a lot of people experience it. What's important is that you experience it. Don't worry about it being abnormal. And it, that's a very that, that's misleadingly important statement. I mean, misleading, you might not realize how important that statement is. Because the fact that something is abnormal is a very important thing. Abnormality is an important part of our understanding of impermanence. So you don't want to be reassured that it's normal. That's a big problem. Big reason why these questions is something normal are problematic because that's not the point. The point is to see how abnormal things can be, to see how unpredictable and uncertain they are. And that's what you're starting to get with the practice. This concern where people ask if something is normal, it's because they're starting to see that, oh, it might not be as predictable as I thought. And that's important. That's what allow gives you flexibility, which what allows you to experience without clinging, without expectation, without worry, without fear. Once you become more accustomed or more wise about the unpredictability of things, it has less of a, an effect on you. Why is my hands get stacked together when I meditate? I don't understand it either. Um, while meditating for an hour is experiencing pain, a natural phenomenon that one has to accept. I shy away from the word acceptance. It's just a word thing, but I would recommend understand. Because one has to accept is a little bit too reassuring, it's a little bit too conclusive. When you say you accept something, you're kind of dismissing it, or you're kind of allowing yourself to ignore it, in a sense. We don't ever want that. We want to understand when you understand something, you've accomplished the goal. Pain is a natural phenomenon, and it's one that has to be understood completely, fully. Or it's, it's a part of the understanding, the full understanding that has to come about, because you don't have to understand every single thing completely. It's not, that's not how it works. It's about understanding the nature of things completely. And that, of course, can come from observing anything that is real. It's not about understanding specific things exactly. And allow them to harm me. Is this behavior in sync with Dhamma? It can be. You don't always want to let people harm you, but you don't always want to fight away. Fight. It's not always proper. To fight, it's not always proper to let. It has to be much more specific than that. But allowing people to harm you, they wouldn't worry about it if it happened. Try to be mindful. Don't take it as a view that you have to let people harm you. Just try and do what is right. It's a part of our learning process. It's not wrong to prevent people, not always. It's of course wrong to get upset and angry and afraid and all that. It really depends, you know, what do you mean by harm? The fact that you can see their suffering, that's great. And understand what's the reality of the situation is great. So when they harm you, like, are they cutting off your limbs? Well, it's not always a bad thing to let people cut off your limbs, but it can often be a very bad thing. They're just abusing you verbally or mentally, or verbally, I guess. 
then it's not something you have to worry about at all because it's just words. If they're just hitting you and bruising you or whatever, then it's also not a big deal. It's the kind of thing you just let it slide. And you find that if you're the more mindful you are, the less likely it is to happen. It may sound it must sound awful. It's very it's very radical this one. And I understand if this is not palatable for most people, but we're not talking about excusing other people's bad behavior. It's just that getting angry about anything is only going to hurt you more. And creating conflict sometimes seems to solve things, but ultimately creates habits of conflict. And there really is a great out, a great a greatness of outcome that comes from patience towards evil. Greatness even for the person performing the evil. Buddha was very patient when people hurt him, attacked him. He was never angry or abusive. So it's the kind of thing you really have to be committed to letting go. Otherwise you you find this conflict this can conflict with views about changing society and social justice and so on. Social justice can be great. I think there's greatness to social justice and even the idea of a social justice warrior seems like a good one to me. It's often used as an insult to people, but the point is not to be a social not to not be a social justice warrior, it's just to not let your fight be consuming, let it not lead to anger or hate. It means stand up for what's right. To me, social justice is, is epitomized by people like Martin Luther King and, and everything that went on during the civil rights movement. Well, maybe not everything, a lot of what went on, where they really tried their best, people involved with it tried their best to to overcome their anger, the, 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 the righteous indignation and anger for being treated wrongly, unjustly, putting up with people's abuse and violence. Saying, saying, we're better than this, we're above this, our cause is bigger than this. It's not just about retribution, vengeance, it's about justice. Because justice is beyond hatred and anger and violence and all that. It can't be accompanied by those things, it doesn't come through those things. It's bigger, it's greater, it's beyond them. So when you talk about justice, you're talking about freedom from suffering. You're talking about freedom from evil. And so, well, let's say freedom from evil more than freedom from suffering. And so, if you get angry or upset at people treating you ill, there's no justice in that. If one is meditating on the breath, but within 39 to 40 minutes, one begins to experience pain in the legs due to numbness, etc. Should we then meditate on the pain? So I don't teach mindfulness of the breath, but if you're referring to watching the stomach rising and falling, honestly, I think you should probably read our booklet if you want my advice, because that's where my advice will be based on. Sounds like you're probably not, because if you read the booklet, you'd know about how to deal with things like pain. We wouldn't normally call it meditating on the breath. Often people do, so it's a bit hard to know. But if, if you are, then, then you should really note everything, not just after 30 or 40 minutes. If there's pain any time, you would note it whenever it arises, pain, pain. And once it's gone, then you go back to the stomach.
think we have another question about pain. When meditating, a pain in the top left side of my head is almost always the most prominent sensation. Should I always keep noting that continuously? Note it for some time. Try and note it until it goes away, but if after a long time it doesn't go away, you get a sense it's been a long time, then just go back to the rising and falling and ignore it until it becomes maybe more jarring again. You know, if something changes, then go back to it. You can always go back to it. said you find it funny when people say mindfully switching uncomfortable positions if you become aware that you're unconsciously controlling the breath shouldn't you switch to natural breath and they send another uh, comment saying by breath they mean the movement of the sun I remember that I'm sorry it sounds like I was a little bit dismissive maybe I remember talking about that. What was it? Mindfully what? Mindfully. It wasn't exactly, I think, what you're saying. Because you can mindfully switch positions. There was something about mindfully alleviating. I, I was trying to point out the fact that we often use the word mindfully to to justify things. and And that can be a problem. So be careful about using it to justify unmindful behavior. Like, for example, people say, what about if I mindfully enjoy something? What's wrong with that? The problem is it's not mindfulness as, as we understand it when you're enjoying something, when you're liking. Unless you say to yourself, liking, liking, then you're mindfully enjoying it, for example. Uh, but switching uncomfortable positions, it, can be done as long as you're mindful and say lifting or moving wanting to move you should note that as well disliking you should note that as well but um, becoming aware that you are unconsciously controlling the breath to be clear you're not actually controlling the breath when you focus on the breath there is tension arising in the body that's what happens it feels like you're trying to control it you know, it feels like you're controlling it. You you maybe could say you're trying to control it, and that would be accurate. But you're not actually controlling it. There's, um, we might say there's an unpleasant mental and physical process engaged when you focus on the stomach. It involves tension in the mind, desire to control, stress, and so on. And that's, that's important for us to observe and to understand, to see. We have to see what we're doing. If you... So I'm not sure what it means to switch to natural breath, but if you try to do that, it's no longer... It, it, it's, we've had this question before, this sort of question before. It's not natural. Right? You can't just switch. There's not a switch in the mind where you say, oh, wait, okay, it's the wrong setting. Let's switch it to natural breath. Right? So what does it mean, try to breathe naturally? Trying to breathe naturally is, is what, it's a, it's a paradox or an oxymoron or something. I mean, you can't try to make something natural, which is a quandary, right? Oh, no, if I, I'm, it's not natural, meaning there's a lot of controlling going on there actually isn't but that's how it appears there's a lot of controlling going on oh no what do i do you say okay i'm gonna force myself to breathe naturally oh no that's not right that's not possible you can't do that as soon as you force yourself to breathe naturally it's no longer natural so that'll never work so what do you do and and this dilemma if you've come to this and you realize this then you you start to get an inkling of what vipassana really is. That it's a shift in perspective. Stop looking at things like problems that have to be solved. 
and start looking at them as experiences that need to be understood. So rather than trying to make your breath natural, try to understand. And by understand, it really just means see clearly. Try and see clearly the controlling behavior, because it's not actually control. It's much simpler than that. There's tension in the mind, there's desire in the mind, there's aversion in the mind, there's stress in the mind, anxiety, whatever. And there's tension in the body, there's pain in the body, there's feelings and sensations in the body. That's what's really going on. And when you understand that, there will be no none of this aversion or desire or anxiety in the mind. And so it won't feel like you're controlling it anymore. and use the technique to to note all of those experiences as they are sorry that's all here go ahead and buddha suggests not to associate with fools i tend to judge the people around me how can we deal with the arrogance of feeling superior because we suppose we are following a higher path mm -hmm. I don't think you can. I don't think you can blame the Buddha. A bit tongue in cheek here, but you can't blame the Buddha on your judgments. But that's an important point. I say that because it's an important point because it actually you know this, but but try and be clearer in your mind that it's not actually the Buddha's suggestion that causes you to judge things. It's your tendency to judge things. And the Buddha's teaching has triggered that, but it's all on you, of course. And so really it's just spiritual development. You have to realize that you are spiritually deficient. Well, it's not a judgment, that's just a recognition. Important in our spiritual practice is recognition of our deficiencies. Recognition of what's wrong. Not that we end up hating ourselves, but that we write that we are clear on our status. How do you deal with it? I mean, specifically, this has to do with view of self, conceit. Conceit is a very difficult one. It goes away completely in an anagami. So it's not an easy one to free yourself from, but it reduces, it gets reduced. Meditation is the greatest answer of course meditation will humble you completely will have you on your knees completely humiliated well completely humbled let's not say humiliated but humbled like Sariputta he said imagine someone wearing clean clothes uh, freshly washed with a dog hung around a dead a dead dog i think it was hung around their neck would they be how would they feel about that dead dog around their neck what did he say something like a dead dog it sounds awful but they try he tried to describe the most repugnant thing that someone might have and he said for so for someone who He said, that's the, that's the way I look at this being. I don't have any attachment to it. No desire to keep it around. No conceit about it. And you come to see everything as, as worthless. The thing about worthless things is, it, it, that sounds misleading that you, you hate them, but you don't hate worthless things. You just don't see any value in them. You, you, you skip them. You, you kind of ignore them. You have no interest in them. When you have that kind of relationship with everything, you have complete freedom. Your mind is completely free. Things don't have worth to you.
during the course of the day when one is not doing formal meditation should one be mindful of the activities of what you are doing or aware of the arising of the happening to be mindful of the activities of what you're doing if you're just sitting still you can be mindful of the abdomen but I wouldn't otherwise I try to be mindful of what's more prominent and that's the activities if you read the last chapter of the booklet I think talks a little bit about this but we usually formalize it at the beginning of the meditation course it's one of the first exercises to start to apply the same principles in daily life so you might want to consider doing the at-home meditation course. Do you have any experience with or know anyone with experience going against the natural circadian rhythm? I started an overnight shift soon. I'll have lots of time to meditate. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, we 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 survive time shifts uh, when traveling. I have a lot of experience. I think that's what that means, right? Changing your sleeping patterns. I have a lot of experience with that. Traveled all over the world. It shouldn't it shouldn't be a problem of course there's a little bit of a shift that you have your body has to undergo but it's i don't think it's that big of a deal Is noting the hindrances enough to understand suffering? Probably not, because you'll be ignoring a lot of experience. You have to be vigilant to note everything that arises. Don't just focus on one of the four satipatthana. This is my first time on live chat, but what is the name of the book you're suggesting that one reads? I'll put the link here. So you don't have to read that booklet. That's just our answer to all these questions. But there are, if you didn't read that booklet, I'm not quite sure where you'd get a similar teaching. I'm not saying you can't, I just don't know. Um, and and I, I, I say that mainly because there might be people out there who have brought have practiced in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition with other teachers and, <clears throat> and so they know they know already everything that's in the booklet and, and more and so then you don't have to read the booklet it's just what I mean to say is find a guide to understanding this tradition because I just because I don't teach outside of this tradition so if you don't like it then go somewhere else but I can't really help you um, and yeah, the booklet is just our way of introducing you to this tradition, which is called, if you haven't heard of it, the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, just because the Mahasi Sayadaw was a monk in Burma who popularized this technique, sort of formalized it, and there are different ways of practicing it, and the way we practice isn't the only way. Some might say it's not even the orthodox way, but it's pretty simple. So we can still say it's Mahasi Sayadaw meditation. Okay, there are a few other questions. I'm not sure which ones. But well, it's nine o'clock, so let's try and focus on the ones that need answering. I didn't mention it, I always mention it that we try to focus on questions that are that answer positive to the question 
will an answer to this question is an answer to this question important for the spiritual development of this individual for the meditation practice of this individual so if it's not really if it's just an intellectual question we tend to skip it if it's a worldly question we put it in a secondary category and and maybe we get to it if there's time but we want to focus mainly on questions where hey this person needs an answer in order to benefit their meditation practice. Antitas, um, one I can ask and then one about the center. So this one is, I tend to overthink. So in the practice, I frequently note thinking. So let me just get this straight. The path is just mindfulness. It's enough. What about taking a diary and reflecting and studying? So mindfulness isn't maybe technically it, it is no technically it isn't it isn't really enough tech mindfulness practically it it can be the main thing you focus on but there are lots of things that are also necessary many of them just come along with mindfulness but things like ethics morality are going to be important even before you start practicing mindfulness. Right view is another one. Really, that's that's about it. If you have right view and ethics, you can start meditating. So studying can help with cultivating right view, the, the sort of right view that's necessary to practice appropriately. But often both those things come when you, when you begin a meditation course because you start keeping the precepts and... You're given. You're under. You're instructed on right view. You're instructed on how to see things as they are. As far as taking a diary, reflecting, those are potentially problematic. It, it's more of a matter of degree. Basic diary about this and this happened in my meditation practice is fine. Some reflection on whether you're practicing properly or whether there's something you maybe are ignoring or missing is fine. But if it becomes a lengthy process, it can be distracting. That's all. So I would moderate it, I suppose. There's a question about some of the center, but it has a mm -hmm. question about our center also. Are the courses offered at Wat Chom Tong identical to the ones offered by you in Canada? Is there some charge for them, and can one stay at the monastery and self-practice between courses? Thank you. I'm assuming with the last question you're talking about ours, right? It's not semantically clear, syntactically clear. Uh, identical? See, Ajahn Tong has passed away. I like to think that the way I teach is very close to the way Ajahn Tong taught. I know it's not 100%, but I like to think it's 90% or something. I may be deluding myself, but Ajahn Tong has passed away. And that's important because not everyone at Jom Tong teaches the way he did, or did teach the way he did when even when he was alive and there's many reasons for that the course is offered at the international meditation center behind Wat Jom Tong are I mean it's all very similar you're not going to get something that doesn't look anything like what I teach but there are some small but significant differences so Take that as you will. So then the next question is, assuming you're talking about our center, there's no charge for anything we do, everything is free. Uh, can you stay at the monastery and self-practice between courses? Mm, probably, probably not. The only exception to that, why? Because, well, yes, but the amount of time that is limited. We try to limit people's stays because we have limited space. So 
I don't know what that looks like right now, but you can talk to the people on our volunteer committee. You can talk through the website, just contact through the website and see what they say. And they'll give you an answer as to what's acceptable. But the, a, a major exception is we need a steward. So if, uh, if there's interest for someone to become a steward, which means staying, and you would have to be willing to do some chores around the center, mainly cooking for the other meditators, then that person can stay long term. But other than that, we don't allow long-term stays. I'm not sure what long-term means at this point. I think those were most of the meditation-related questions. Sadhu. That's all then. Thank you all for coming.